Let me pray for us before we open God's Word together. Father, we pray that you would take this eternal truth, that you would sow it in our hearts, and that the truth would go deep. It reach every corner, it reach every recess. May light shine where there is darkness, and may you receive the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. This is the holy and errant word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, this morning, first Sunday in January... We begin our faith focus. Let me give you a little reminder of what faith focus is. So we started this a couple of years ago where our calendar runs like this. We do a faith focus in January that carries us for uh, that month. And then when we hit the summer, uh, we do our connect and equip where connect and equip where trying to get you connected to different opportunities to serve in the church and serve in the community, and we are attempting to equip you to do so, so that when we hit the fall, we are practicing hospitality and we are guns blazing as our kind of calendar year as a church begins there in the fall, and everybody is plugged in and serving, and we are reaching our community around us. But what we do in January is we begin the year with something that we feel like we just need to drill a little deeper down in together. Something that we want more and more in the DNA of our church. And so the process is this. The staff gets together at their fall retreat in the fall. And at our fall retreat, the staff comes up with three or four possibilities of what the faith focus could be for the following year. And then when the elders, the session gets together, 
later in the fall, they have those possibilities before them, and they spend time in prayer and dialogue and thinking about it, and then select one for us to do together when January comes. And then what we do in January is we preach on Sunday morning about these things. On Sunday evening, we work them out in a little more detail, a little more specifically, preaching through them. Our growth groups work through something in this area where they're working on this issue or this topic. And then we ask all of our ministry leaders to put together a plan that fleshes us out in their ministry areas. All that to say, this year, the faith focus is united in our witness. And the reason is this, it's probably self-explanatory, uh, is 2020 was just a hard year, a hard year for all of us. Uh, and as we go into 2021, we want to remind ourselves that we are united together, and we are united together in purpose. And the purpose is to go forward in our mission together and witnessing together to one another and to the world around us of what we have received in Christ. So you'll see that the sermons I'll preach this week, we're going to start at the very bottom, the very foundation, United in the Gospel this week. The next week, Pastor Kevin's going to preach United in Fellowship. He'll also preach the following week, United in Witness, because uh, I am trying to close out a, a Doctor of Ministry degree and have two classes the next two weeks. And then the following week, will be United in Reconciliation. And then on those evenings, we'll work out some of those things specifically with other preachers. So uh, this will be a wonderful January. And then in February, we'll return back to the Gospel of Matthew. So this morning, though, what I want to look at is what unites us together as we think about our unity together and our witness together. If we're going to consider being united in our witness, then we must know what the foundation of our unity is. And in my mind, this is the very best thing to begin any new year with. It is the very best thing to begin anything with. And clearly it was for the Apostle Paul as well, as we'll see in our text this morning. Only two points this morning, and then a few applications. The two points are this. What unites us above all is what we have received and what we know. What unites us above all is what we've received and then also what we know. So first, let us recognize that what unites us is what we have received. Paul here is writing to this church in Corinth, and this church in Corinth, it is a mess. It has many problems. Uh, you and I, we will often speak about the peace and the purity of the church. When you, each of you that have become members of University Reformed Church, that is part of the vows that you took as becoming a member of a PCA church, you say in one of those vows that you promise to promote, that is uphold and, and keep the peace and the purity of the church. And it's something we talk a lot about, the peace and the purity of the church. And the reason we talk a lot about the peace and the purity of the church is because the scriptures themselves are replete with an emphasis upon maintaining both the peace and the purity of the church. And yet, when we read here about this church in Corinth, there is neither peace nor is there purity. It is a church that is a mess. I often laugh when people deride the modern day church by saying, I just want us to be a New Testament church. And I think, have you read about the church in Corinth? That's a New Testament church. And it's a mess. 
There are divisions based upon personal allegiance to different pastors, divisions in families, divisions over doctrine, division over heresy, divisions over unrepentant sin, division in suing one another, divisions over marriage and singleness, divisions over judgment of one another, divisions over clothing and worship, divisions over worship itself and their approach to the Lord's table, division over doctrine like spiritual gifts and the resurrection. This is a dysfunctional church. That is divided through and through. And yet, what has always shocked me about the letter to the Corinthians is how Paul begins it there in chapter 1, verse 4. He says this, I give thanks to my God always for you. He gives thanks to God always for them. It doesn't tend to be our response. It doesn't tend to be our inclination. I wonder if you love the church this way. Those who are not quite holding the standard as you think they should, or they must, in purity or in peace, or as we might say, in truth or in love. I wonder if that is your inclination to give thanks always for them. How could Paul have such a response for such a church? We, we'd almost understand it if he didn't know of all of these problems in the church. But he does. He knows of all of these problems. He, he details them over and over. I remember being a pastoral intern, uh, much like Leo is doing this fellowship. I was a pastoral intern after graduating seminary and spent a year in a, a PCA church. And I remember entering into that church and, and seeing things from behind the scenes. And when you see things from behind the scenes in a church, you see a lot of sin. And I wasn't ready for it. And I think those first few months, I was in a real depressive state. Couldn't believe how much God's people were filled with sin. But here, Paul doesn't have that response. I found myself when I was in that, that internship, I found myself very judgmental and not thankful at all for very many at all in that church. And Paul is thankful for all of them. Why? Every church has error. Every church has some degree of conflict. Every church is compromising in some way or many ways because every church this side of heaven is made up of sinners. If there's a perfect church, I can't belong to it. And neither can you. Every church. And Paul knows this. He knows that these Corinthians are a mess, but he also knows something else. They're recipients of the grace of God. He says there in chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. He knows that they are recipients of the grace of God. 
And as recipients of the grace of God, they are the object of the love of Christ. And if they are the object of the love of Christ, then they are the object of Paul's love. And if they are the recipients of God's grace and mercy, then there is reason to give thanks to God for every single one of them. But what about all this error, Paul? He's not dismissing it. No, Paul is addressing it in our passage. He's writing to correct their error. A heresy has arisen. At this point in 1 Corinthians, there's a certain teaching that it appears that some in the Corinthian church were preaching that there was no resurrection. And so Paul addresses that. Well, how does he address it? He addresses it like he would address every single error. He points them back to the gospel. He points them back to the gospel. In fact, in this book, Paul will over and over speak about the gospel and preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. He does it in chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 15, chapter 9, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, verse 18, verse 23, and then again here in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now remember, this is a Christian church. They know the gospel. They've received the gospel. And yet he returns back to the gospel. In fact, in verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 15, he says that he preached it to them. Second, that they received it. Third, that they now stand in it. It was the beginning of their Christian life and it continues to be the center of their Christian life. In fact, he says here in verse 2 that it is the gospel by which you are being saved. So it's also the future of their Christian life. This is the foundation for all it means to be a Christian. The gospel. And so he points them back to the gospel because it solves every single problem there is in their life and in their corporate life together. This is, as Paul says in verse 2 of this chapter, what they must hold fast to. This is what unites them. This is what unites them to Him. This is what unites them to God. This is what unites us. The Gospel. So what is the Gospel? If someone was to awaken you in the middle of the night, you know, when your, your brain's a little foggy and cloudy, and, and asked you, what is the Gospel? What, what is that good news? What would you say? Could you say it without stammering or stuttering? Could you just say it? I want to ask you that this morning. I want you to think right now. What is the gospel? What's the gospel? Say it in your head. What's the gospel? Paul begins to detail what the gospel is here in verse 3. He begins with a familiar phrase, I delivered to you what I also received. This is language that he will use again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, or he did previously in this book. It is technical language. Paul is saying, look, this is not something that I made up or that I created, it's something I received. There in chapter 11, he is speaking about that in relation to the administration of the Lord's table, that which I receive, I also deliver to you. He's saying, look, this gospel is something that I received. 
In fact, many scholars believe that here in verses 3 through 6, because of the language that we have and the grammar that is here, that this was actually an early creed of the church. Christ not only revealed Himself to Paul and the Gospel, but here we have this early creed of the church, much like we confessed this morning, the Apostles' Creed. This would have been something that they confessed together. Here is the Gospel. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And this is the foundational truth of the Christian faith. Christ died for our sins. And you'll notice that messianic title. That is, that this one who had been prophesied that would come, that was sent by God, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus is He who came. Just like Isaiah 53 prophesied and other passages foretold, He would die for His people. The one who was prophesied came to set God's people free. Free from what? Well, as Paul says here, He died for our sins. And that's the exact language that we see there in Isaiah 53. This is substitutionary language. He died to atone for our sins. And here we have the very foundation or the very core of the Gospel itself that Christ Jesus came into the world and that He died for our sins. Here's the foundation. I often think that my job in preaching and being a pastor, your job as ministers of the Gospel is, is really just one thing with two different applications, how it's worked out. It's just one thing, and that one thing is the Gospel. We're to preach the Gospel. We're to tell the Gospel. We're to teach the Gospel. And there's just often two different applications depending on where you're at and what you need to hear. Some of you in Christ need to be reminded of how Beautiful you are by virtue of Christ dying for your sins. Why? So that you might magnify and rejoice in the glorious grace of God. There's some of you that need to be reminded of how ugly you were apart from Christ. How ugly your sin was. Why? that you might glory in and you might rejoice in and might magnify the grace of God. It's the same subject, the gospel, just two different applications. There are others of you that need this good news for the first time ever. And this is good news for you. Christ came into the world to die for sinners. Well, it says in verse 3 that this was in accordance with the Scriptures. What Scriptures? Well, we've already said Isaiah 53. We could go to Psalm 22. We could go to something like Exodus 12 and the Passover lamb. But really the reality is it's all the Scriptures. Like when Jesus is at the end of the Gospel of Luke and He's walking on the Emmaus Road with those two disciples who don't recognize Him and He walks them, He says, through all the Scriptures, showing them how all the Scriptures pointed to Him. All the Scriptures testify of this Christ who is to come into the world and die for sinners. And then the Creed says He was buried. And this is important. And you know it's important if you've been at the graveside funeral of a loved one. You've 
you felt that tug when someone you loved has died and their body was lowered into the grave and then those first handfuls of dirt were thrown on top of that casket. You felt the tug. This is final. This is done. They really are dead. It's a seal upon death. Jesus Christ truly died. He was buried. But now the creed says in verse 4 that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Death could not hold Him. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and then He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. These three pieces of the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, they are like three pieces of indivisible truth that are held together by messianic glue. You can't separate them. He died for our sins. He was buried and He was raised on the third day. The Gospel. Charles Hodge wonderfully pointed out that the Old Testament Scriptures, time and again, they will speak of this Messiah that comes into the world, that He will suffer and that He will die. And yet, he says, you also have this reality that the Old Testament Scriptures time and again speak about this Messiah coming into the world that will have dominion over all things. And His dominion will be forever. And how do you reconcile those things? He comes and He dies and yet He has dominion over all things forever. And the answer is the resurrection. He's raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So we review the gospel is Jesus Christ who died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried, and then was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is what unites us. Paul then lists the appearances of the resurrected Christ. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve, that is the disciples. And he appeared to five hundred at one time. And he appeared to James. And he appeared to many others. Why does Paul include this? Because even as his burial certified that he was truly dead, so his appearances before all of these people certified that he was truly raised. And Paul is saying, look, you want evidence? There are people still living. You can go ask them. They've seen Him. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And we've seen Him. Gospel. This is good news. It's good news for every non-Christian. You can be saved from your sins. And it is good news for every Christian. And you need to hear it over and over and over again. And this, beyond everything and anything else, is what unites us. So much so that when there were problems in this local church in Corinth, Paul does not wax eloquent about great, mysterious, high-minded doctrines. He simply goes back to the gospel. It is the solution for everything that ails them because it is what unites them to God and it's what unites them to one another. Second, 
Let us recognize that what unites us is what we know. What unites us is what we know. Use that term know in a biblical sense. Not just know cognitively, but where you know something, where it is, as we would speak about knowing in your heart, it is knowing as the Old Testament would speak about it in your bowels. It is knowing with your affections. It is knowing with your entire person, where it's swallowed up in this knowing. It is an experiential knowing. And notice that that's what happens to Paul here in the latter half of our text. He speaks about this gospel that he has proclaimed to them, this gospel that they have received, this gospel that they know, and he can't help himself. He can't help himself but begin to explain his own experience of the gospel. He is so excited about the gospel and what he knows about it that he inserts his own personal history. And he begins speaking about what an awful sinner he was, how ugly he was apart from Christ, and what zeal he had for darkness, even persecuting the church, so that he might magnify and delight in and rejoice in the glorious grace of God as he speaks about receiving the gospel himself. The gospel, he wasn't passionate about it because it was just something he preached. It was something that he received and something that he knew, something that he stood in, something that he held fast to, as he says to them. So much so that he will erupt in verse 10 with saying, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Truly, this is what unites us above all what we have received, and what we have known in the gospel. Few applications in closing. First, be thankful for one another. Be thankful for one another. Say, but I don't agree with them. I don't like the stance that they've taken on this or that. I don't think that they are exampling maturity as they should. I think they are putting a bad image before others in the church or those outside of the church. I don't like the way that they're judging me, even while we're judging them. You know, Paul here in 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians are judging him. They are doubting his apostleship. And he will especially speak to that in 2 Corinthians. And though they are judging him, he still is always thankful for them. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. He received the gospel he knows the gospel. He has experienced the gospel. And that changes everything for him in relation to those that are his brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows that he is a sinner. And so when he thinks of them, these Christians, it is thankfulness. Are they sinners? Yes. 
So is he. Are they recipients of grace? Yes. So is he. And he is united to them by this grace. And he's united to them by this grace, by this one Lord, through this one gospel for all of eternity, and he knows it. And so he's thankful for them. Where there's division in the church, it always, always, always comes back to ignorance of the gospel. Second, be an expert of the gospel beyond anything else. Be an expert on the gospel beyond anything else. Paul begins this entire description of the gospel by saying in verse 3, that this is the thing of first importance. All these problems, all of these things going on in the Corinthian church, and he goes back to the gospel. Why? Because he says it's the thing of first importance. I uh, had a history professor in college, and I took a number of classes with him. He would, literally on the second that class began, he would not say welcome. He would not say hello. He would just start lecturing. And he would not end until the very second that the clock hit when it was time for class to end. And he allowed no questions. And he allowed absolutely no comments. It was just two hours of straight lecture every single day that we sat in his classroom. But here, it wasn't so bad. You know why? Because we found the trick. You could tune out for like four-fifths of the class. And that's why I took him so many times. Because he would stand up and he would say, now this is important. And whenever he said, now this is important in his lecture, you knew that this was code for, this is going to be on the test. Everything else was fluff. This is the test. And so we would all perk up. Paul says this is of first importance. Your ears should be perking up. Everything else is a distant second. Be an expert on the gospel. You want to be of service to your family? Be an expert on the gospel. You want to be of service in the church? Be an expert on the gospel. You want to be of service to this community, to this world? You be an expert on the gospel. You want to be an expert in that you've received it and know it in a biblical sense where it influences Everything about you. See, some of you have been sitting here this morning going, oh, the gospel, I know the gospel. If that just went through your head this morning, you don't know the gospel. Because here's the reality. When you know the gospel, you realize you want to know it deeper and deeper and deeper. That you don't know it like you should. It is so simple that a three-year-old can understand that Jesus Christ came into the world and He died for sinners in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It is that simple and it is so profound that you can spend the rest of your life growing by leaps and bounds and you can never hit the depths of it. Where you find that you went to a new level, and last year it was child's play what you thought of the gospel. And now you find Christ all the more lovely. 
That you understand the grace of God all the more comprehensively. And then the following year you look back and you go, I didn't have a shadow of understanding. When you understand, when you know the gospel, you want to hear it more and more and more so you can experience it more and more and more to where it is the very sphere in which your life is lived. It influences everything. What would this new year look like if every single one of us in this church just prayed, Lord, help me to know the gospel more fully? And what would it look like if as a church we shine the light of the gospel through us more fully and community around us. What would this year look like? What does that even mean? You look at the little insight Paul gives of his own knowing. He says that even the good works and the labor and the preaching of this gospel, which Paul will wear himself out for, which he will pour himself out for, he will die for. He says this, he says it's but by the grace of God. That is, his entire life was shaped by this gospel. It infused every part of his life, the gospel. It, it marked him. It was the environment he lived in. It was the thing that was upon his tongue, the thing that dominated his mind. It is what most stirred his affections. It is what moved his hands and his feet. It, it touched every part of him. Seeing this past year, 2020, I think we have a ready illustration here. Think of COVID and our entire, we just take our nation, has been astir with this. You say, well, it makes sense that it's such a passionate issue because it touches upon government and touches upon community and finances and individual freedoms and restrictions and health and you start talking about something that addresses government and community and finances and individual freedoms and restrictions and health, and that's going to strike a chord with everybody because it touches every life. And it's touched every one of our lives, and it's seemed to consume our entire society. And yet COVID is nothing compared to what should happen when the gospel is received. It bleeds into everything. It touches every corner. There's nothing that's off limits. Everything is seen through it. Everything is to be done through it. Everything is to be motivated by it. It's the environment we live in. So much so that Paul can say in other books, he can say, for me to live is Christ. That's the gospel. Consumed with Christ. Be an expert in the gospel. Third, you know, the gospel concerns itself with both purity and peace. It is truly what unites. 
There's a natural inclination, I think, for us just as human beings. I think this is just part of our human nature that we naturally seem to gravitate towards either purity or peace, or as has become much of the lingo today, especially you think of these COVID times within the church, of either truth or love. We all naturally gravitate towards one or the other, and we can prefer one over the other, but here's the problem. Truth and love are reciprocal values. There is no possibility that one or the other can have a hierarchy over the other in relationship to the other. Not in the gospel. It doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. You can't have purity without peace. You can't have peace without purity. You can't truly love without truth, and you can't love truthfully without love. It's an impossibility. And so, it is the gospel beyond anything that unites. I often think of Paul's words to Timothy where he says, guard this good deposit entrusted to you. What is he speaking of? He's speaking about the gospel. This good deposit you've received, you're to guard it with your life, Timothy. You're to give everything for it. You're to fight for it to the nth degree. You're to sacrifice everything you have for the gospel. Hold on to that truth, but not that alone. We're also to safeguard the peace of the church. We're to fight for peace. And you notice that Paul says the gospel is of first importance. That means that there are things of secondary importance. There are things of tertiary importance. Every hill is not a hill to die on. Some refuse to ever fight and some refuse not to fight. And you can't have either in the church. Paul says here, I think is very helpful in this regard, that the gospel is of first importance. The gospel is of first importance. There are different ways to think about this. Let me give you a couple. Eric Thune in the ESV Study Bible speaks of four different levels of doctrine. There are the first level, which he calls absolutes. These define the core beliefs of the Christian faith, what we're speaking about this morning, the gospel, or what we confess this morning, the Apostles' Creed. You deny that, you're off the reservation. It's an absolute, first order. Second are convictions. While not core beliefs, they may have significant impact on the health or the effectiveness of the church. Maybe something like baptism or the spiritual gifts or ecclesiology, how the church is to be governed. Third are opinions, less clear issues that are generally not worth dividing over. Maybe something like, should we use written prayers in worship or just extemporaneous prayers in worship? And fourth are questions, currently unsettled issues. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, phrased it this way. He said, there are first order doctrines a denial of which represents the eventual denial of Christianity itself. You begin denying that creed, you're on the way to denying Christ and denying the faith. You're gone. There are second-order doctrines upon which Bible-believing Christians may disagree, but they create significant boundaries between believers, whether as distinct congregations or denominations. 
And third order doctrines upon which Christians may disagree, but yet remain in close fellowship even within local congregations. When we speak about the peace and the purity of the church, a congregation which is first and foremost concerned with first order doctrines or the absolutes is a congregation that will experience peace. They know what unites them. It has first importance, as Paul says. That doesn't mean that we don't discuss. It doesn't mean that we don't try and convince one another of secondary or tertiary doctrines, but because they are less essential, they do not end up dividing or fragmenting the church. And surely that is true Within, and it is even more true for the things that are happening outside the church. Let me put it another way. Here's a question for each of us to wrestle with Am I most passionate about the gospel? Am I most passionate about Christ having died? for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, been buried, raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Am I most passionate about that or something else? And I say that having been more passionate about other things. I can think of times where you know, I had received the Gospel, I understood it, I knew it, but Pato-baptism, Presbyterian government, corporate worship, I was much more passionate about than I was the gospel. And you knew it if you spoke to me, because that's what I talked about. You knew it when you spoke to me, because that's what I got animated about. That's what I love to think about. Don't major upon the less major. Notice I didn't say minors. That is true of some of us. Don't major upon the less major. Finally, as we're united in this gospel, let our life together be the fragrance of heaven and a foretaste of eternity to come. We're an embassy. This church is an embassy of heaven. When people encounter us, whether they come here on Sunday morning or whether we meet them in the workplace or they are members of our family or we meet them in our neighborhood, they should encounter a gospel grace. That's what should shine through us. It's then that we truly know the gospel. So when it's just eking out all the pores just begins to inform my life. To go forward in this new year, that's my prayer for us. 2020 has not been easy. <laughs> it has not been easy. But this is what I know. God has been at work. He's been at work. And part of that work is, is that He is brought us through hard things, 
He's brought us through difficult things. He has discombobulated things, if that is a word. So that you and I might be trusted and tried, so that we might fall more in love with the gospel. So that we might know it more fully. My hope is, is that we've been learning that lesson. And so that when we go into 2021, we go united together. And we shine before one another. And we shine before this community. And that makes for a dynamic church. Impacting those within and those without. Love the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, oh, forgive us that the gospel is often something that is cold to us. We consider it to be rehashed terrain, something that too often we treat as dry, as if we know it to its depths. And all of us are but babes in receiving and knowing the gospel. Oh, grow us in greater delight in this truth that we have received, that we stand in, and that we are being saved in. May it fill our fellowship with one another. May it mark our lives as we go out into this world. We're united in this gospel, united to you. We pray this in the strong, holy name of Christ Jesus who came into the world and died for sinners in accordance with the Scriptures, was buried and rose on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. What a Christ. We give you praise. Amen.